Bonjour, frère Luc. Ah, Nordine, la baisse Ça va Oui. Tiens, samedi, il y a l'artana de Jamel. Ah bon Ça va être la fête Ouais. Bien sûr, vous êtes tous invités. Tu viendras Oui, avec plaisir. D'accord. A tout à l'heure, bon courage. Oui, toi aussi. العفريت راك هنا ما راحش للمدرسه C'est presque sec. Alors, il ne faudra pas remettre de bonnes semences, pas la peine. Et puis, pas la mettre au soleil, surtout pas. Ça, c'est dangereux. Défendu. Voilà. Bon, bah, moi, je suis très content. Hein. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a Ah oui, je vois. Oh là là, c'est grave, hein Bon, je reviens. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Rains, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, what is today, the third day of December? I'm already exhausted by all the hustle and bustle of this season. I, I think I'm getting older. We had a great week, um, had a lot packed into this week. On Tuesday, we went over to Omaha. Our daughter, Kylie, is a sophomore at Creighton University, and uh, she's in a choir. They had their Christmas concert, so we went over and got to hear that and see her. It was fantastic. Wednesday night, I was here uh, teaching Power Life and Ignition, our ministry to middle school and high school students. Uh, Thursday night, we had a date night. We got to go out with some friends for dinner and then go see a show at the Civic Center. That was a great night, except for the show. <laughs> Can I get an amen from people who were there? Yeah. Um, Anyway, on Friday, we drove up uh, after work to Minneapolis, and we had dinner with our son, uh, Dalton, his girlfriend, Ruby, and then the four of us went to Orchestra Hall in Minneapolis, where St. Olaf College was having their Christmas festival. Our son, Kemble, sings in one of the choirs there. Uh, because I'm cheap, we didn't spend the night. We drove home. We got home at two in the morning. Because I was super excited to prepare this uh, message for you this weekend, uh, but I'm, I'm a little tired. And when I have weeks like this where there's just a lot going on and it's jam-packed and even if it's really, really good stuff, uh, the pace just feels a little uh, too fast. And I'm reminded of this movie, one of my favorite movies of gods and men. You just saw a clip from it. Um, it tells the true story of eight Cistercian monks. They're at a monastery in the North African country of Algeria. So they're French monks, but they're down uh, in Algeria. And this uh, monastery has been there for centuries. And the monks of the monastery have been serving that community, a predominantly Muslim community, for centuries. 
And the film does just an incredible job, a beautiful job of showing the way they've earned the trust of that village. In, even in the scene that we just watched, you can see the way that everyone's just kind of like they love each other, they serve each other, they care for one another. The monks get invited to uh, the celebrations that uh, are happening in the families in that village. It's beautiful. Part of what's happening historically in Algeria in the 1990s when this movie is set, uh, they're in the midst of a civil war. So at some point, the government became corrupt, and the president would lose an election, but then annul the results of the election and would never leave office, and this uh, made the people a little upset. And so he institutes martial law. This makes them even more upset. Eventually, it leads to a violent and long and drawn-out civil war led uh, by some Muslim insurrectionists. And so as the violence and the terror is getting closer and closer to this village, the monks are faced with a decision, and that's the, the primary plot of this film is, what are the monks going to do? Are they going to stay in, in this very dangerous kind of setting and circumstance, or are they going to leave and, and be safe? The movie's called Of Gods and Men. You can't see the tagline, but here it says, in part of the promotion of this movie, in the face of terror, their greatest weapon was faith. And because you are a super sophisticated congregation and you love foreign films with subtitles and super slow pace and hardly any action at all, I thought we should show clips from this film. In a very beautiful way, they show the way this, these monks work and serve and love the community, how they worship, how they study and pray, and how do they, guided by their faith in Jesus Christ, make the important decisions in their life. Here's an example of them sitting around a table talking about this decision they're faced with. Take a look. Il y a une autre solution. Partir vraiment. Je pense que chacun doit décider selon sa conscience. Retourner en France ou partir dans un autre monastère d'Afrique plus sûr. Partir, c'est fuir et abandonner le village aux terroristes. Il faut le faire progressivement pour éviter que le village soit inquiété. Ça ne change rien au fond. Le bon berger n'abandonne pas son troupeau à l'heure où arrive le loup. Moi, je propose que chacun de nous se prononce sur un départ possible. Jean-Pierre Faut rester. Depuis quand on obéit aux armes Paul Je pense qu'il faut partir, progressivement. Célestin Je suis malade, je veux partir. Luc Partir, c'est mourir. Je reste. Michel Personne ne m'attend nulle part. Je reste. Amédée Je ne sais pas encore. Il faut réfléchir. 
et prier ensemble. Moi, je pense qu'il faut partir. Et toi, Christian Je suis d'accord avec Amédée. Je trouve qu'il est prématuré de décider. Notre secours est dans le nom du Seigneur. Qui a fait le ciel et la terre. Help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't know what difficult decisions you are facing currently in your life. I don't know what's keeping you up at night. I don't know what help you're looking for as you make your way to worship today. But I agree with the wisdom of these monks as they quote the beginning of Psalm 121. Help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Actually is a nice bridge into our Bible reading for today from uh, the book of Revelation. This year at Hope, it's the whole Holy Bible in a year. And so as we come to the end of the year, we come to the end of the Bible. Our Advent series is focusing in on the book of Revelation. This week, our uh, daily readings have us in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 10. I want us to start off by uh, reading how Revelation chapter 7 begins. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. There's a lot going on in this part of Revelation, and we're going to focus in on the glimpse of heaven we get from this section of the book of Revelation. Last week, Pastor Ashley did a really nice job introducing us to apocalyptic literature. If you didn't get the opportunity uh, to hear her sermon, you can go to YouTube, just type in Hope Ankeny Sermons, the search bar on YouTube, and that will take you to a playlist of all the sermons that get preached here. You can subscribe to the podcast and listen to sermons if you you prefer to listen rather than watch, which is what I like to do. Um, But part of what Ashley told us is when, when you're paying attention to apocalyptic literature, there's a faithful way to read and interpret it, and there's a not so faithful way to read and interpret it. If we're going to be faithful in our interpretation of what's going on in the book of Revelation, one of the things we need to do is pay attention to the numbers. There's a lot of numbers in, in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of uh, judgment, a lot of destruction, but there's a numeric consistency to all the judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation. For example, there are three cycles of judgment, but each of the cycles contain seven parts. So you read about seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and everyone's trying to figure out what does all of this mean. Lots of numbers in the book of Revelation and in apocalyptic literature, and a faithful interpretation of them remembers we don't have to take the numbers literally. We don't have to take the numbers literally when we come across numbers in apocalyptic literature, but the numbers point us to ideas, and the ideas we should take very seriously. Number seven is showing up in the uh, book of Revelation, but it shows up in other places in Scripture too, uh, like in the very beginning, in the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the seven days of creation we sometimes talk about. More accurately, it's the six days of creation, And on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God rested. Think about our lives. 
hustle and bustle season, December. It's easy for us to turn every day, every month, into this sort of perpetual hustle and bustle cycle. We as a society, we just go and go and go and do and do and do and work and work and work and make sure our calendars and our kids' calendars are just jam-packed so we never have any time to stop and to breathe. And the reason we do it is because we've convinced ourselves this is what's going to lead to the good life. We all want a good life. We want the very best that life has to offer. And we've become convinced that good life is up to me. My effort. It's all about what I do. That's what's going to lead me to the good life. And God sees this foolishness. And so from the very beginning, God has built into the rhythm of how the very best kind of life is supposed to be. He builds in stopping points pausing points. Every seven days, God reminds us, you need to slow down. You need to stop. Stop doing, stop working, stop trusting yourself, and instead slow down and pause long enough to remember to put your trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will guide, he will direct your paths. Help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 7, the verse we just read. You see several numbers showing up there. Uh, one of the numbers you see is the number 4, and you see this phrase, the four corners of the earth. This verse is one of the reasons why we know we should not take the numbers in Revelation literally. For centuries, church people took these numbers literally, and they believed, because the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth, well, the earth must be flat, like a sheet of paper, like a blanket that has four corners. The earth is also flat. And then, as our knowledge and understanding grew about the universe, as we began to understand, oh, guess what? The world is actually a sphere. It's a globe. It is not flat. It does not have corners. Guess who objected to this news? Christians. People who read Scripture. Because they were afraid, no, 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 no. If the earth is not flat, then I can't trust the Bible. Maybe it's just your interpretation of the Bible that can't be trusted. Maybe you need to interpret Scripture through a different lens. Maybe you're not supposed to take the numbers literally, but the numbers point to ideas that we should take seriously. So in this verse, we see the number four, but notice the number four occurs in a triplet. Four angels four corners, four winds. Remember what the, so we got four and three happening in this verse. We just don't see the number three. The uh, monks at the end of that scene we just watched said, help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is a really important biblical idea. And, and over and over, uh, as we live out our Christian life, we see this idea, but we don't often stop and think about it. At the end of the service, we're going to celebrate communion together. Part of the liturgy around communion is we pray the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. We live our lives in this frantic pace, faster and faster all the time. And we think this frantic pace of life is going to lead to a full life, but it ends up leading to fracture. 
it ends up leading to disintegration. Instead of making a full life, it blows our lives apart because we're just so busy, so constantly on the go. We don't have time to stop and think and listen to what God might be speaking to us. God's not in the disintegration business. God's in the integration business. It's what Christmas is all about. Throughout the season of Advent, as we're making our way to Christmas, it's this reminder God wants the things of heaven, the things of God, to be integrated into the things of earth, into the reality of our life. That's what's going to give us the very best kind of life when heaven and earth come together. So there's a bunch of numbers that we see here. Uh, We see the number three. Let's talk about the number three for a little bit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who always was, who is, and who is still to come. This, these are lyrics to a song that's being sung in heaven in this vision of heaven that John is given. And maybe you recognize them as lyrics to a hymn that you sang when you were growing up going to church. Holy, holy, holy. You ever wonder why it's three holies? Why not two holies? Why not four holies? Well, the song doesn't work unless it's three. No, it, the song comes right from Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Number three in the Bible almost always points to the things of heaven, things that are divine, things of God, a triune God. And so three is always pointed to this idea of God. Uh, you, you also see this triplet, who was, who is, who is to come. God exists in the past, in the present, in the future simultaneously at the same time because God is eternal. God's not bound by the laws of time like you and I are. So the number three in the Bible almost always points to the things of heaven and God. The number four in the Bible almost always points to the things of earth. You got four seasons, you got four directions, you got four basic elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And remember, God's desire is for heaven and earth to come together. So what happens when you integrate heaven and earth? What happens when you integrate three and four? Uh, We're going to have to do a little bit of math here, but it's 11 o'clock. You should be wide awake, right? Uh, What happens when three and four come together? It depends on what kind of math you're doing. Let's start with addition. Three plus four equals? That's a pretty important biblical number, isn't it? it? It's a number that represents wholeness, fullness, completion. So these numbers are pointing us to to that kind of idea, this fullness, this completion. What if you multiply three times four equals? You didn't say that confidently, people. Uh, But you're right. It is 12. And and 12 is an important biblical number. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of Jesus. As you read through Revelation 7, there's a huge section where 12 shows up a lot. I'll start in verse 4. I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. And then it lists out all the tribes, the 12 tribes, and it shows there's 12,000 from each of the tribes. If you do that math, math, 12,000 times 12 equals 144,000. Another example of uh, places in apocalyptic literature where the numbers are important, but we should not take them literally. You take the numbers literally, Then how many people are marked with the seal of God? How many people make it into heaven? 12,000 from each of the tribes, 144,000 total. That's how many people make it to heaven. It's not a lot of people. I mean, it would be big for a basketball game, for a football game, but think of all the billions of people on the planet right now, all the billions of people who have ever lived throughout human history. 
Only 144,000 people make it to heaven if we take the numbers literally. And there are some people who do. Maybe you have met them. Uh, they go around neighborhoods knocking on doors, asking if you'd like to talk about faith, talk about scripture, talk about uh, Jesus, Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe only 144,000 are going to be saved. Only 144,000 make it into heaven. I don't believe that. Why? Why don't I believe it? Because it reduces my odds? <laughs> no. Because that's not what the Bible says. Keep reading. The next verse, verse 9, we'll put it up on the screen, read this out loud with me. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. I know a lot of you love sports. You go to sporting events and you've been in stadiums that are jam-packed with 60,000, 70,000 more. Maybe you go to NASCAR events, over 100,000 people at NASCAR events. You can count 144,000. It's not that difficult. But a vast crowd too great to count, it's going to be a lot more, way bigger than 144,000. So what's the big idea? If we're not supposed to take the numbers literally, but the numbers point to an idea that we should take seriously, what, what's the big idea in this section of the book of Revelation? We've got 3 and 4 and 7 and 12 and 12,000 and 144,000. So what? The big idea these numbers are pointing to is this simple truth. God loves you. God loves you. And for all of eternity, God has been at work. The God who was and who is and who is still to come has been at work doing whatever it takes to reveal this truth to you. God loves you. Now, sometimes the mistake we make when, when somebody reminds us that God loves us, we, we kind of hoard that. We keep it just for ourselves. God loves me, too bad he doesn't love you. But again, pay attention to what Scripture is saying. God loves you, and it turns out God loves everyone. People from every nation and every tribe and every language are going to be a part of this vast crowd, too great to count, worshiping God in heaven. One of the other things that Ashley was talking about last week as she was introducing us to apocalyptic literature is the dualistic nature of the language of apocalyptic literature. Uh, dualistic language often creates two categories or two forces that are often in conflict with one another. And so you read through a Revelation apocalyptic literature, you see light versus dark and good versus evil and God versus Satan. This is dualism or dualistic language. And part of the reason apocalyptic literature is filled with dualistic language is because it's written into these crisis moments in human history. When, when you are in crisis, you don't have time for nuance. You don't have time for explaining things. You, you don't have time for conversation or for complexity. When you're in crisis moments, you just got to make a decision right now. If you go home and you're sitting around the, the table having dinner or... Um, I don't know, you're watching a game and all of a sudden someone says, hey, I smell smoke. Oh, look, I see flames. Our house is on fire. Crisis moment. And you will quickly slip into dualistic kind of language. We need to get this fire out or else. We need to get out of the house or else. It's life or death. It's black or white. And this is dualistic kind of thinking that happens and is needed and is necessary in crisis moments. There's basically three apocalyptic uh, books 
in the Bible. Uh, parts of the book of Daniel, uh, the prophet Zechariah, and then the book of Revelation, apocalyptic language. Three of the 66 books, that means the other 63 are not apocalyptic, are not dualistic in terms of their language. And there's a reason for that. Most of your life, you will have crisis moments, but most of your life, you're not living in crisis. And so dualistic thinking and dualistic language is actually not helpful in those kinds of moments. But there's something about us as human beings that makes it really easy for us to just kind of slip into, even when it's not a crisis moment, we slip into dualistic language, dualistic thinking. And it ends up harming rather than helping. Let me see if I can explain. Uh, Genesis 12, way back in the beginning, God goes to a man named Abram and says, I'm choosing you, Abram. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. You're going to become the nation of Israel. You can read about it in Genesis 12. God calls Abram. Here's the end of the call. It's on the screen, Genesis 12, verse 3. Let's read this out loud together. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So from the very beginning, God's plan, God's plan according to Scripture, not just to bless Abram, not just to bless the nation of Israel, God's plan from the beginning, according to Scripture, is that all families on earth would be blessed through what God's going to do with Abram in, in the nation of Israel. God's plan is to bless everybody, people from every tribe, every nation, every language. This is God's plan, but sometimes it's easy for us to forget this. Abram is blessed in order to be a blessing, but it's easy for us to hoard the blessing. That happens to Abram and his family. By the time you get to Jesus, dualistic thinking is running rampant in uh, Jesus, the religious world of Jesus' day. And, and the phrase that helps you know dualistic thinking is winning the day is the phrase us versus them. Read through the Gospels. Notice all the us versus them kind of categories that show up. Jew versus Gentile. Clean versus unclean. Righteous, unrighteous. Holy, unholy. Male versus female. Rich versus poor. Slave versus free. Healthy versus sick. I mean, all of these dualistic kind of categories. Us versus them. And it always, always, always leads to division. It leads to separation. Uh, it leads to hate instead of love. It leads to disintegration instead of integration. I grew up in New Providence, Iowa, a little farming community about an hour north of here, a population a little over 200. And there was about 200 people that came to our church. Pretty much everyone in town came to church. When I was in high school, we didn't have Ignition. We didn't have a high school youth group, but there were two people, a couple in the church, uh, Arlen and Jean Dulesky. Jean's dad, Lloyd, was the first pastor that I remember at that church. And Arlen and Jean hosted the high school students on Friday mornings, invited them over for breakfast and a, a little devotion and a prayer to kind of get the weekend started. So uh, Arlen and Jean grew up in New Providence. They went to college, they got married, and after college, they were teachers. And one of the places where they taught was a school called the Ramallah Friends School. Uh, Ramallah is in the West Bank. It's Palestinian territory about uh, 30 minutes north of Jerusalem in Israel. 
And last weekend, these three boys, who met as classmates at the Ramallah Friends School, who are now uh, college students in America, uh, they were shot last weekend in Burlington, Vermont. Um, they had gone to Burlington because one of their uncles had a home there, and they were hanging out over the Thanksgiving break. And they're walking around town, and somebody saw them. And something about the way they looked, uh, something about the way they dressed, something about the way they sounded and spoke caused that person to pull out a gun and shoot them. Who are the thems in your life? Who are the people that, you know, maybe it's not race or ethnicity or, or religion. Anybody notice the Tiger Hawk logo on my drinking cup? Sometimes it's as simple as this, and we think it's all in fun. And most of the time it is, until it's not. This dualistic thinking, oh, Scott's one of them. It could be high school rivals. Uh, those of you in the business world, in the marketplace, uh, do you have competition? People who are in the same business as you, selling the same products as you. Uh, when you pray at night, do you pray for God to bless them and make their business successful? Do I pray for the other churches in Ankeny to grow, to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ? It's so easy for us to turn everything inward and to make these categories, these us versus them categories, this is your assignment for the week. Pay attention to when you find yourself slipping into dualistic thinking, slipping into us versus them kinds of thinking. Who are the people in your life that you're like, I don't want to see them, I don't want to talk to them, I don't want to be around them? Are there any groups of people that you think of in similar ways? I don't like them. I'm pretty sure God doesn't even like them. Jesus doesn't buy into this dualistic thinking. Uh, there's a real interesting exchange that takes place in uh, Mark's gospel at the end of chapter 9. In, in verse 38, John comes running to Jesus. And John says, Jesus, we saw somebody casting out a demon and they were using your name, but since they weren't part of our group, we told them to stop. If, you really should read the Bible. This stuff is in there. One of Jesus' closest followers comes to Jesus and says, I saw somebody doing a good thing. It's a good thing to cast a demon out of another human being. I saw somebody doing a good thing, but I told them to stop because they weren't one of us. And Jesus says to John, don't stop him. Go to the next verse. Jesus says, anyone who's not against us is for us. Does that kind of sound like a familiar phrase, a phrase that we kind of use in our world? Anyone who's not against us is for us. It's pretty similar, but we don't say it this way. We have a different order, don't we? If you're not for me, you're against me. That's not how Jesus words it. Anyone who is not against us is for us. By putting it in this order, what's Jesus doing? He's making the circle bigger and bigger and bigger of, of those who are us. And when you make the circle bigger and bigger of those who are us, it by default makes the circle smaller and smaller of those who are them. It's almost like Jesus is saying, let's just do away with us versus them categories altogether. 
Don't take my word for it. Read the Gospels. See how Jesus lives and see how he relates and see how he treats people. Jesus is almost always getting into trouble because he's hanging out with them. He's loving them. He's serving them. He's eating meals with them. Look at the followers of Jesus. Jesus teaches people how to live, how to relate. And the followers of Jesus don't move in the direction of more dualistic thinking, more us and them. Now think of the Apostle Paul. He's about as dualistic, black and white, good and bad as anyone has ever been. And then he meets Jesus. And it changes everything. And Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. No more walls. No more division. No more separation. It leads to disintegration. Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 26. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, we have a mission at this church, to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. And we have a vision. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. This has been the vision of hope since 2019. Uh, we had a vision before that, and in 2019, as we were making our way to the 25th uh, birthday of Lutheran Church of Hope, we got a, a vision team together, pastors and uh, staff members and lay leaders in the church for months to think and pray and dream and listen. And they tweaked the vision statement, and now this is the vision statement. The other thing they did, we believe listening to and following the leading of the Holy Spirit, came up with something we call the 10 for 10 vision of hope. 10 big goals uh, for the next 10 years of ministry. I want to remind you what goal number two is. It's called unity agents. We believe God is turning hope into a place that's filled with unity agents. What does a unity agent do? Here's the paragraph. and You can find all of this on our website. Build bridges of harmony for cultures divided by race, ethnicity, creed, gender, sexual orientation, politics, and worldview. Illuminate in our public teaching and private conversations a biblically faithful application of God's word to the issues of our day. Avoiding the ditches of legalism and relativism, rising above dismissive debates, calling instead for a third way. Everybody say third way. Third way calling for a third way of civility, compassion, respect, love, and acknowledgement that the Christ who unites us is greater than the issues that could divide us. Third way. That language is kind of hope language to remind us dualistic thinking isn't going to get us the life we want. It's not going to get us the life God wants for us. Black and white, easy, simple, no room for nuance or complexity or, or for slowing down and actually having conversations. No. A third way means 
We've got room for that kind of stuff. Third way means we're going to be humble enough to admit my way of looking at the world is simply that. It's my way of looking at the world. Might not be your way of looking at the world. Might not be the right way of looking at the world. Certainly not the only way of looking at the world. So, powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love and make heaven more crowded, how do we live that out? How do we become that kind of a church? Ask God to open your eyes, to slow you down enough that that you might see some opportunity. On uh, Friday afternoon, I was in a hurry because we needed to drive up uh, to Minneapolis so we could have dinner before uh, the concert. I was filling up with gas at uh, Quick Trip on First Street. And I caught a glimpse of the person on the other side of the pump. And, you know, I was busy doing other stuff. So in my mind, the glimpse, the picture that I saw, it was like a foot in a sandal. And it was a hairy foot and a hairy ankle. And then, like, uh, I thought it was someone getting ready for a Christmas pageant. So I did a double look. It wasn't someone getting ready for a Christmas pageant. It was simply someone who is not part of the same culture that I'm a part of. And so he was dressed in the way they dress in his culture. And immediately I thought of those three boys in Burlington, Vermont. And so I looked this guy in the eyes and I tried to start a conversation, but he didn't know English well and I didn't know his language well. So I said, where do you live? And he said, on the other side of town. I was hoping he would say like what his nationality was, but I, re- I realized we weren't going to have a conversation, so I just looked him in the eye and I said, I am glad you are here. I hope you have a great weekend. I have no idea if he understood a word, word I was saying. He just had a big smile on his face. When I see someone who looks differently, who dresses differently, I've learned over time not to be upset or scared by this, but to be curious about this. What do you suppose his story is? How did he end up in central Iowa? What's his family situation? I would love to get to know that story. Maybe, powered by the Spirit, there'll be another opportunity for me to have a conversation with that guy that can last a little bit longer. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. I don't know what it looks like, but pray for God to give you opportunities to live into that vision. I want to show you what it looks like for the monks in this movie of Gods and Men. They've got decisions to make, and it's Christmas. They're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. And there's a knock on the door, and it's the leader of this Muslim insurgency asking for help. Take a look. J'ai besoin de tobib. Il doit venir avec nous. C'est impossible. J'ai trois blessés qu'elle doit soigner à une heure de route. Il ne peut pas partir d'ici. Il est malade, il est, il est vieux, il a des crises d'asthme. Frère Luc a toujours soigné les blessés qui viennent au dispensaire. Il, il soigne indifféremment tous ceux qui ont besoin de lui. Il se fiche de leur identité et nous continuerons à faire de la sorte, mais rien de plus. Alors vous allez nous donner des médicaments Nous manquons de médicaments. Tous les jours, nous soignons une centaine de nos frères musulmans. Assez Vous n'avez pas le choix. Si. 
J'ai le choix. Nous ne pouvons pas vous donner ce que nous n'avons pas. Vous n'avez qu'à demander à vos frères du village, ils vous diront que nous vivons modestement, avec seulement les produits de la terre. Vous connaissez le Coran Et tu trouveras certes qu'il y a, parmi ceux qui sont disposés à aimer les croyants, ceux qui disent « Nous sommes des chrétiens » et qu'il y a parmi eux des prêtres et des moines. Voilà pourquoi nous sommes proches de nos voisins. Vous savez qu'aujourd'hui, ce n'est pas un soir comme les autres. Pourquoi C'est Noël. C'est le moment de l'année où nous fêtons la naissance du prince de la paix. Le prince de la paix C'est Naïssa. Jésus. Excuse-moi alors, je ne savais pas. Par lui, avec lui et en lui, à toi, Dieu le Père Tout-Puissant, dans l'unité du Saint-Esprit, 
tout honneur et toute gloire pour les siècles des siècles. Amen. We worship, we follow, we serve a God who saves us by loving us to the end. And we live in a world that seems to be getting louder and louder and angrier and angrier and more and more divided and more full of hate all the time. And we can be tempted to think we don't have a choice. We've got to go the way of the world. We need to be louder and louder and angrier and angrier as we reach out to the world around us. But we do have a choice. The season of Advent, we're making our way to Christmas, to our celebration of the one who's born the Prince of Peace, who ushers in real, true, lasting peace, not by inflicting violence on others, but by allowing others to inflict violence upon him. And he asks us to follow him. There's nothing easy about following Jesus. Nothing easy about being a third-way kind of church, practicing civility and compassion and respect and love in the name of Jesus. Of course, we don't follow Jesus because it's easy. We follow Jesus because he's worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We remember that love. We remember that sacrifice when we come to the Lord's table.